2017, some 1,700 young people were sentenced to be incarcerated and about 70% will have problems with their mental health. Alex Lloyd is a born and bred Londoner from Wapping and although only in his mid-twenties, is already a lecturer in psychology at Birkbeck University London and the University of East London and has been working with young offenders from Hackney and Islington in his role as community panel member of their youth offending team. Alex engages with young convicted offenders to help them action their community-based sentences with an objective to help them repair the harm they have caused by their crime. In his role as lecturer, he continues to conduct research into adolescent risk behaviour and its link to antisocial tendencies. He is also involved in several other charities whereby he helps change the lives of London youth. I first met Alex when he gave his impassioned TEDx London talk earlier this summer and his desire to make London a better and safer place for all came through loud and clear. I'm Steve Lazarus and this is your London Legacy. Well, I'm delighted to be here today with Alex Lloyd sitting in a pod, a study pod in the library, I think, of the main library of Birkbeck University of London. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, right in the centre of the campus here, a short walk away from Goode Street Underground Station, which is where I walked in from. Um, a little bit warmer than I anticipated it would be today, so I'm quite, <laughs> quite, quite warm today. And um, there's no air conditioning in here, unfortunately. Um, so we're in this dark glass pod in a, I don't know what you call it, like a communal study area within the university library. Yeah, luckily it's quite quiet because it's the summer months, but yeah. So I'm thrilled to welcome Alex to the podcast today. So warm welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I first met Alex, although he wasn't aware of it, when he was giving a talk at TEDx London in, I think it was June of this year. First of July. Oh, I beg your pardon. <laughs> first, first of July at the Royal Festival Hall on the South Bank, where Alex gave a an impassioned talk about his involvement with uh, youth justice. And I think that's Alex has done a lot of work. He's uh, a lecturer at uh, the the university here and uh, University of East London as well, where he lectures on psychology, the research aspect, I believe, of psychology more specifically. Yeah, yeah. So looking particularly at how we research and study human behaviour in the brain. I should also point out Alex is a born and bred East Londoner as well, I believe. Which part of East London? Uh, Wapping. Wapping. So okay. I literally lived there all my life. Yeah, it's, so yeah. Yeah, a, true, a true Londoner, true <laughs> East Londoner. Not quite a Cockney, I don't think. Though. Not quite, no, no, no. It's not the accent. No. So heavily involved with psychology, with youth justice, um, is involved with youth offenders, and we'll talk about that and your your work with um, young offenders, and also your work with uh, charities and program leader, I think it is, in arranging away days and special trips for, for the youth as well. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're a young guy yourself. You're, you're quite a bit younger, younger than me. <laughs> How old are you? I uh, 25. 20, 25. <laughs> yeah. and, and so it's fascinating to me that a 25-year-old is, is so heavily interested in helping the youth of today. I mean, what, what led you into becoming an, interested in, and passionate about youth? I mean, I've sort of asked this, this question to myself quite a lot. And it's something that um, I guess I've kind of really come to look at as something that started when I was a young person myself. So I went to school in at the London Nautical School in South East London. It wasn't by the best school by any stretch of the imagination, but it was a, a good school. And we had a, a huge mix of people in that school. It was like some people that came from really well-off backgrounds, some people from disadvantaged backgrounds. And I think seeing people come into that mixing pot and then seeing sort of some of the young people that I did see in my class and my, you know, my peers essentially go off the rails and end up on the wrong side of the law. I think seeing the fact that some of them came from like really academic backgrounds, some of them came from not so academic backgrounds, there was no kind of one size fits all as to what got them involved in, in prime criminal activity, essentially. And I think that's kind of where the particularly youth justice side of things have come into play is that 
I think it's kind of the idea that, you know, it's not just a case that we can ascribe one rule for why young people get into crime. You're young, white, male. You, you look and sound to me, I mean, not being disparaging at all in any way, like a sort of middle class gentleman. It's a fair, fair comment, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so you saw, you went to school with like-minded, like background type people and you saw, or, or was it a complete mix, cultural mix? It was a complete cultural mix. So there were, you know, people from all walks of life. It was a state school. So it was, uh, it was you know, literally anyone within the catchment area of the borough. I went there with a bunch of people who um, I've become great friends with who have completely different backgrounds from me. And, you know, I think that in and of itself was quite an illuminating uh, thing. You know, I went to I went to primary school in a in Tower Hamlets and in Tower Hamlets, we have a very large Bangladeshi population. And I was a minority in my class as a white male. And so I've always come from backgrounds where I'm not necessarily, although I, I speak fairly well and, you know, I've been lucky in life. I've not necessarily, you know, just come from a background where I've only associated with people that are like me in background. Mm. No, if you come from Wapping, you're unlikely to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a fair point. I mean, that's the beauty of London. So was there a point in your sort of school, in your education, when you thought, this is the route I want to go? I want to get involved in working with young people. I want to, you know, learn about what makes young people tick, you know, from a cultural and psychological point of view? No, I actually, to be completely honest, this, this is only something that I've, I've kind of stumbled into almost. And I left school being like, right, I want to do psychology. You know, I'm really interested in going to university. I wanted to do the very sort of stereotypical route of, you know, go to uni. And after that, it was, it was a blank wall. I didn't know what was happening after that. I was lucky throughout like post-university days to work for a number of like really cool charities that work with young people. And also during my university years, I worked as a sailing instructor for a charity called Dockland Sailing and Water Sports Centre. And they work with a bunch of people from a range of backgrounds and essentially are a charity that are involved in getting people from backgrounds who wouldn't necessarily have access to water sports into water sports. So, you know, even being in that environment, it was about seeing a, a range of people from backgrounds, not on, not some similar to me, some dissimilar to me, all being involved in something that we could all engage with and actually have fun with together. And so I did all of that. And again, the, I think these things were kind of like, brewing under the surface it's not something i came to realize until maybe after my university i spent a year away traveling which was really nice where, where did he go southeast asia oh wonderful onto japan india sri lanka and then to the middle east for a little bit and so you know all throughout this time there was never this kind of conscious realization of this is what i want to do but then i came back to london and i came back to see the city that i loved and i came to sort of have that kind of comparison i suppose with other places that i'd been to and also some of the issues that i could see as being a londoner and also, you know, with the experience I had working with young people and that, and I think it all sort of culminated when I started my master's and I was like, you know what, we in psychology have a very privileged understanding of how the human mind works, essentially, and why people act as they do. Why don't, and why can't we use this to sort of involve or inform how we do youth justice and how we deal with young offenders? Because currently it's not really used effectively, or I don't think as much as it should be to inform how we do youth justice and improve the service that we give to young people who end up in the criminal justice system. That's interesting. Was there any, did you have any input from your, your parents as to the, sort of the role you were going to pursue in your career or your, your interests? No, no. I mean, I, my dad left when I was like 12. So that was oh, a right. completely okay. non, like non-influence. But my mum has been, you know, my mum has been wonderful in that she's sort of been the bedrock in terms of sort of just what a good human being should be. She works in the charity sector. She has done for years. She has been very much, you know, a role model in terms of like, what should, what do we do with our lives? We help other people as best we can because we come from a privileged background. Sounds or... like a future guest for uh, the podcast. <laughs> okay. So that, that's, that's interesting. So 
our paths crossed, as I said, although you didn't know it at the time, because I did, I did try and come up to the speaker's lounge at the interval. I didn't meet you. I met one or two of the other guests there, Jamala. Oh, yeah, uh, Osman, yeah. Who, who appears on the podcast at a later interview. Oh, fantastic. Um, who's, a, who's a wonderful young lady. And I want to touch on, I want to talk in some detail about the talk you gave there, which is all about your involvement with youth justice. So just talk us through your, I don't want you to resume your presentation, but talk <laughs> us through your ideas, your premise that you put forward at that talk. So the gist of what I tried to give at the talk was that the way that we currently do youth justice isn't actually fair on young people who have come from disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, if you look at the psychological research into young people who experience trauma in their early life, their brains are fundamentally wired differently from young people who haven't experienced trauma. And so to adjudicate on them in the same way as young people who have come from exactly the, like completely different backgrounds for the same crime, I don't think there's a sort of parity with that. That's not fair in terms of like just giving the same sentence to young people without taking into account additional factors such as trauma or various psychological things. So I'm just going to ask you to back up a second. How do we know that these kids, call them kids, these youth brains are wired differently to others who don't necessarily commit crime? How do we know what the difference is? What's the evidence there? So we've been very, very lucky in psychological research to have the advent of fMRI, which is functional magnetic resonance imaging. Um, this allows us to give a very clear image of what's going on in the brain in terms of what neural pathways are activated at what particular times. And when you have someone who's experienced trauma in, in their early life, you know, when they're a child, for example, when they get to teenage years and you do these fMRI scans, and you compare the fMRI scan between a young person who has experienced trauma and then a young person who hasn't experienced trauma, there are significant differences in terms of what those wirings are. And so the way that the brain's actually programmed to work in young people who have experienced trauma is actually different from those who haven't. So I've got a couple of questions then. So first off, what would you, con or not you personally, but what is considered to be a tra traumatic incident in a, in a young person's life? So there's a there's a range of different things of what it can go under. And I don't think it's a blanket case of this, what is trauma for one person will be trauma for another person. But some stereotypical cases, and they are quite extreme, um, extreme examples, are sort of witnessing domestic violence, being the victim of domestic violence, parental substance misuse, sexual abuse, uh, neglect can be uh, one as well. So not having the not having a parent take care of you adequately, parental mental health issues. So if your parent's got a mental health um you know, say, for example, severe depression or schizophrenia, that can also be a traumatic experience for the young child. Um, all of these things, like I say, it's not a case of black and white, yes or no, but these are all things that are identified as being early traumatic experiences that can then impact the development of a child into their teenage years. And just playing devil's advocate here for a minute, I assume there can be kids, youth who have experienced and suffered abuse, neglect, or some of the horrible things you just mentioned, but not go into crime and maybe not exhibit the these, I don't know what you call them, the electro the electrical impulses that you know that you said before. Yeah, they don't yeah. So they may manifest in one person but not in another, although they experience similar levels of abuse. Absolutely, yeah. So um there's it, it depends on because there are huge individual differences when it comes to these things. So one of the things that really sticks out as whether or not someone will be really heavily affected by these traumatic instances is a concept called resilience. And it's something that we use colloquially quite a lot, but it's become quite big in in psychological research as a as a term of you know how able someone is to um, overcome a traumatic experience. And you know, say in PTSD, for example, we have a, a large sort of research evidence body to say that the degree to which you experience a traumatic incident in adulthood, for example, and then go on to develop PTSD is very much moderated. So it you know whether or not it'll be expressed is, is changed by the degree of resilience you then have. All right. So sorry, sorry to butt in on your um, your your thesis. So you've you've said that kids 
maybe slightly differently wired who end up committing crime or those who commit look at it the other way those who kids who commit crime when you look at them and study them a good percentage of them may be why be demonstrated to be wired differently what can we do to stop them reoffending, or what can we do instead of incarcerating them and locking them up for possibly relatively minor offenses what can we do to stop the vicious cycle of them going back into prison so one of the things that is currently being done to a degree and i think needs additional investment in sort of government policy is this idea of rehabilitation and we currently have this in youth offending teams which are known as referral orders which are out in community sentences for young people who offend where they don't go to prison but they complete a program of a program of activities or a program of interventions aimed at reducing their likelihood of reoffending i think what we can do better and what we need to be doing more so is investing more heavily in these and looking specifically at things like trauma and things that we know that predict reoffending in young people and actually having more robust interventions in place for those and sort of really drawing on the psychological research to say how can we do that that's an idea for reoffending is there a way of identifying potential criminals shall we say potential offenders probably a better word before they actually offend by looking at their their behavior their patterns their social their upbringing etc i mean it's it's one of those things that it can be quite tricky because do you is it can be quite dangerous to try and say well you know we're going to put on this, this, you're more likely to offend, so we're going to put you through all these things when actually you had no intention of offending and you wouldn't have gone on to. So I think, while I agree, I think it is quite a dangerous road to go down if we start trying to pinpoint people who are at risk of offending. But equally, I think there are certain things, you know, for example, if we know that social workers have been involved with a young person and they have been subject to neglect or abuse, then I think, you know, things like that are straightway should be picked up and be like, right, how can we intervene? How can we mitigate, essentially, the damage this can end up having on a young person. I think also in terms of stopping young people from offending, I think it's not just about trauma and it's not just about these early life experiences because it's also when you think about out in the community these days, we've got such a, a lack of resources for young people to spend their time constructively when they're not in formal education, even when on the weekends and that. There are a complete lack of youth services for like and youth centres for young people, which I think is really. You took the words out of my mouth because what you so often hear after the event on the on the local news, for example, is you know why did this crime you know this crime why was this committed, and often you hear the kids say, well, because there's nothing to do around here, so we we were bored. So whilst boredom is not an excuse per se, I guess what you're saying is if there was like a community or a centre they could go to to participate in something creative, put their energies to, there's less likely to be a chance of criminal activity being. In, entered into yeah 100 percent, and it's it's really cliche i mean it is it is so cliche to say but it, it's it's because you know there is good evidence to say that actually young people who are involved in productive activities are more likely to be away from crime and i think that you know so part of my research in psychology is looking at as i was saying before it's about ambiguity and it's about risk taking and it's you know why do young people when and why do young people take risks and i think that you know what we essentially know is that young people are going to try and push the boundaries it's about giving them the setting in which they can do that safely and without negative consequences for themselves, but also the community, society and potential victims. Mm. Yeah, we were talking actually off, off mic about risk taking. And we were saying that some, we all take risks and we're growing up and we're, we're pushing the boundaries and testing ourselves and see what's possible and what's not and what is not possible. And even as, a, as a, we said, as a, even as a toddler can sort of climb up to the top of the stairs and not realise there's, you know, 12 flights of stairs to fall down and fall over. That's why the mums put the, the, the stairs, the stair, what do you call it, thing across the stairs to stop them falling down. But the only way to learn is through taking risk, but assessing the risk before you actually take it. But a lot of the kids, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, who get involved in crime, 
unable to stop themselves from taking a risk. They don't assess the risk fully or they don't understand or they, or they do, but they can't stop themselves. What is the difference? I think it's a couple of different things when it comes to that. I think there is an element of not being able to stop themselves from taking the risk. There is this kind of idea of, you know, teenagers when they're all teenagers want, want to go and experience new sensations. That's something that teenagers do. And we know that very well is that teenagers will want to go and push the boundaries and try new things out. I think what young people who go on to commit offences are, particularly maybe not so much violent offences, which are quite different, but, you know, more property based offences and stuff like that. I think what the difference there is that they don't really understand when they get negative feedback. So if something goes wrong, they don't really take that in and then update their experiences or they don't update their schema in terms of how they then go, right, well, next time I won't do that because it won't end very well. They just go and push forward and take the risk anyway. So that's the old thing of the parents saying, don't you ever learn from your mistakes? Exactly. How many times do I have to tell you not to do? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They keep repeating the same same mistake. It's because they don't, they they physically, mentally can't learn? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's that they can't learn. It's just that they have this... there's just the the forces at work in their brain that are telling them to go and do the risky thing are stronger Mm. than the things that go well maybe we shouldn't do this is there something linked there with i don't know whether it's dopamines or whatever the 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 instant pleasure hit of taking that risk yeah by going on a roller coaster and you want to i don't know you want to go nick that sweet from the shop you want to go and set fire to that dustbin or whatever it is because you want that instant gratification. Absolutely. So one of the big things in the sort of neurocognitive side of what I do is is this idea of an imbalance between the areas of your... Um, so when you're a teenager, there's a huge imbalance in the areas of your brain between the centers that are responsible for rewards, processing those rewards, and the areas of your brain responsible for stopping yourself from doing silly things, essentially. And when you're a teenager, the, uh, the part of your brain responsible for the rewards grows massively when you get to about 12 or 13 years old. Whereas the other part of you that says maybe that's not such a great idea doesn't really grow until you're about 15, 16. And so it's that real peak time of like when you've got that disparity between them, that's when you end up seeing a lot of risk taking. And so I think that's partly why a lot of teenagers generally take risks. I think what happens with, with young people that go on to commit antisocial risks is there's very much a case of there is no updating of that well, maybe we shouldn't do this. We've done it once before. It hasn't gone very well. It's just a case of let's keep doing it. Let's keep uh-huh. trying to push. So I guess there's um, there's a physical thing, maybe a chemical imbalance, if you like, perhaps. And there's also maybe a social thing. Maybe we're not, a, not adequate role models within the community, within the family home as well. Yes, yeah, so combination combination of things which are removing the the risk factor, the perceived risk factor from from the offender. Yeah, yeah. And mentors are such a huge thing when it comes to youth offending in that there's some really good charities that work in London with young offenders that are specifically focus on mentoring. I think St. Giles is one, Wipers is another one. And they do some really good stuff in terms of having role models who are actually, you know, they are of similar backgrounds to the young people as well. They're not people who like don't empathize or don't share any life experiences with those young people, but they actually share those experiences. But obviously they're older, more wiser, and they've, you know, learned their mistakes. And so they do some really fantastic work in terms of being active role models for those young people. And that's such an important thing to have as well, is that having that kind of person in the community that isn't your age, but is someone that you could aspire to be to. Absolutely. And I think one of the other things we, we spoke about previously was there's there's quite strong evidence to show that a lot of offenders who are in prison are suffering or, or do suffer from some form of um, mental health issue, whether that's whether they're on the the autistic spectrum, perhaps I don't know, ranging from ADHD right up, you know to autism and dyspraxia and all those sort of learning type behavioural issues, right up to mental health issues, you know, severe mental health issues from schizophrenia to bipolar and all that. And I guess if you throw that into the melting pot as well, you've, you've got <laughs> a ready-made mix, haven't you, to, to, to start 
to go down the wrong route. I think this is the thing is that I think there's such what it is is that it's such a complex issue and I think that when you come to public discourse that they really want to paint a black and white picture of it it's either this or it's that because you know people get that easier and it's easier to sort of package to people but actually what it is it's just a very difficult set of circumstances so you say for example a lot of young people in the criminal justice system have ADHD now that whether or not that's part of their part because they have ADHD is not necessarily I don't think it's that clear because what happens when you have someone with ADHD is that typically they're not necessarily as attentive in school. They tend to get up on the wrong side of the teachers in school. And at the extreme cases that they then get excluded. Now, you see the a lot of young people that get excluded do tend to end up, end up in the criminal justice system. So it's like whether or not it's their ADHD or it's the fact that it's the things that happen to product. Uh, let me say that again. Whether or not it's the fact that it's their ADHD or the fact that it's a product of the symptoms of their ADHD is a very different thing. Well, I can talk from first-hand experience as the father of a son who has ADHD and has had it from a young age because it's obviously discovered in his when he was a young young boy at school, and it was quite obvious to us that his behaviour was not as I don't want to say as it should be because that sounds you know a bit pejorative, but not as one would expect it to be. And you're talking about talking out of turn, shouting out inappropriately, you know, social problems, making friends at school, and all those sort of things, and. I guess if you put that in maybe with a family, we, we, we were very aware of it because my wife being a special needs teacher, so we were able to manage it to a degree. But if you take maybe my wife out of the equation and a family, a one-parent family who don't understand those things, then you've got the possibility of something to ignite and turn into something much worse. And I'm quite sure, I'm totally convinced that had my son not been brought up in our specific family, his chances of ending up going down the criminal path would have been hugely, hugely enhanced. Give, I think one of the things that really sort of makes me passionate about this area is that it's, you know, not everyone has a fair start enough. Not, not everyone has the, fair, has the same start. And that's just an unfortunate fact of life. And so to give a young person a harsh sentence because they haven't necessarily had the best opportunities in life when someone put in the same, given the same person in a different situation might have had a very different outcome. I think that's what I really sort of advocate for in terms of how we need to readjust how we do youth justice. So what, what's, I mean, asking what the solution is, is, is a ridiculous um, sort of suggestion. But what was your conclusion in your, in your talk on how, how to take this forward? Because obviously we, we've got, I think you said in 2017, 1,600 young, young people, of 1,600 young people, 70% had mental health problems who were incarcerated in 2017. I mean, that's just, that's just crazy. It's got to be some way these issues can be identified early on, whether it's in school, whether it's parents, some sort of social setting to understand, hang on a second, this kid is having some problems. And unless we do something about it here and give some help and support to the family, primarily I would have thought to support the kid, then you're going you're gonna to have problems. And it's going to cause obviously a financial problem because then they're going to go on and they're going to cause crime. It's going to be a victim at the end of that crime. There's going to be all the cost incurred with dealing with the crime, the insurance claims, which I deal with in my other life, mm. and, and so on and so on. So the argument presumably to put to um, Theresa May and her government is that you've got to put some funding in at the front end of this to, to, to help out here. That's exactly it. And I mean, I think it's one of the big sort of terms in the air at the moment is a public health approach. And it's, you know, treating it just as that. It's treating it as if it is a disease and that the criminal activity is a symptom of that disease rather than the cause. And so the most effective and really the solution to this, you know, wave of violence we have going on at the moment is to look back at those issues, to really put the investment there and as you say, it stops the eventual monetary input of having to fix all these things through incarcerating someone, through remuneration to, you know, legal proceedings, insurance, so on and so forth. Actually, if you stop it at the root, it saves a whole lot of money and it actually saves people's lives. 
I think you mentioned in your talk that Scotland are doing something different to what we're doing down here, down south. So, uh, yeah. so, so what is it that they're doing different that, that's caused their statistics to be superior to ours in terms of youth crime? So what Scotland have done is essentially they've got this fantastic model which was put forward by the Violence Reduction Unit. And they Glasgow was at one point the deadliest city to live in the European Union. Um, I think about 10, 15 years ago they had that statistic come out. Now, since that's happened, what they've done is they've tackled the roots of what is going on with violent crime. And essentially, they're looking at employment as a big one. They've also got mental health issues that they've raised an awareness of. And they've thought about rehabilitation. So, so what is it that people who are involved in crime are lacking from their lives that makes them go on to pursue criminal activities? And I think one of, the, you know, among mental health and unemployment, substance misuse, they've kind of had interventions put in place to tackle each of those things. And since they begun this about 10 years ago, they've seen a substantial reduction in crime. So it's about having that long-term plan in place to essentially put those safeguards in early on. And then with time, with, you know, no doubt, a lot of effort and a lot of mishaps. And, you know, sometimes it won't work. But if you put that in place and you give it the kind of funding, you give it the consistency that it needs, the payoffs do show. And Scotland is a prime example of that. And 10 years is no time at all, really. I mean, that's a remarkably quick turnaround. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's generation. Yeah. Uh, that, that's fantastic. And I mean, th- I think Scotland is a unique case for that. I think Scotland is, you know, definitely not the not the norm. But I think it's something to be emulated in the UK, given what we know about specific circumstances in London, Manchester, you know, all these urban areas where these crimes are happening. And I think, you know, we've got to emulate that, yes, but also take into specific factors that are London, you know, London specific. So is this a topic that you lecture on specifically? Or is this just an, an area of your passion and expertise i've given i've given lectures on youth crime and also sort of what is called psychopathology in in young people and um so you know when development goes wrong essentially so do you have any input or does this university or your colleagues have any input into policy making at all no and i think it's something well not that i'm aware of anyway and it's always something that psychologists aim for and you know any researcher really aims for is to have that public impact and i think that's why you know tedx was such a cool experience because it's something that you know, I feel very passionately about and also gives me a way to translate it to a wider audience. And I think, you know, hopefully with what I'm doing with my PhD, like I can get to a stage where I'm able to just have that input and just, you know, at least give some sort of insight into what might work better than what we're currently doing. So moving on from your TEDx talk, you're also, and your role as a lecturer, you're also heavily involved, as you said, in some some charities as well. So Talk us through your involvement with, what is it, the challenge, I think it's called, in part of a charity, a bigger, wider charity. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, the, yeah, the challenge is a provider for the National Citizen Service. And they are a charity that takes, I think, the latest figure, it's grown exponentially. It was, I think the last time I looked, it was like 22,000 young people last summer in 2017. They took away on a two-week residential and then two weeks of doing stuff within their community. And what they essentially look to do is make, young people at 16, 17, active participants of their communities. They look to get political engagement. They also look to sort of like social, um, look into social mixing. So getting young people to meet people from backgrounds that aren't necessarily their own. And it's a really fantastic program that I was fortunate enough to work with. And um, so, for example, I, my role was to um, sort of coordinate on the ground, a group of 40 young people and the, the members of staff there and essentially take these young people away for week one, which is just pure physical activities, which they absolutely love. 
Second week, they live in university halls, um, which aren't being used currently because the students are all away. But they stay there and then they do a bunch of team-based activities. What age group did you say? 16 to 17. 16 to 17. And how do they get onto this program? How do they apply? It's just an open to all kind of program. And it's it's really good. It's made very accessible. And there are subsidies for um, young people who come from backgrounds that can't necessarily afford it. So I think um, some of the young people pay like 30 quid to go away for four weeks, which is phenomenal. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, because it is... It gets a lot of government support, which I think is really cool. I confess, I hadn't heard of it, but then I, I suppose, why should I? I mean, I'm not sort of specifically <laughs> in this area. But the fact that I haven't heard of it, I suppose, means it's not in the public domain as much possibly as it should be. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, a, it's an odd one, actually, because, N- I mean, maybe that's reflective of the sector as a whole, because NCS is one of the biggest things we have in the youth sector for, you know, outside of school activities for young people. So I think that's quite indicative of the fact that people not working in that sector haven't necessarily heard of it. And challenges the organisation that actually provides it. Is it through yes. through the funding through NCS? Yeah, yeah. So they're like, I think they get money to go and provide it essentially. But I mean, yeah. And then they have a bunch of partners. So with the outdoor activities, for example, these are centres that are ready and ready and set up for it essentially. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. My wife used to, again, in her role within the Senko role within school, used to take kids away and integrate the kids who had special needs into the mainstream. So they go on these uh, outbound activity calls. I forgot what some of them are called now, but um, it's been a few years. But they came away. They absolutely loved it. So I can imagine these kids, some of whom are, I guess, you know, disenfranchised and, as you say, from abused and poor backgrounds. It must be a wonderful learning experience for them. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that, that's it as well. Some of them haven't even been outside of London. And, you know, they, they go to sort of, I think we went to Suffolk, it was. And, you know, it's the most green they've seen. They get to see the coast and it's just absolutely wonderful. And like, you know, and even there's like a whole drive to have people that are, like you say, disenfranchised, people with disabilities there. And the whole thing is about mixing. So we had, you know, young people with autism. We had people who had uh, criminal justice histories. And it was all just really great. And, you know, they got on really well and they managed to speak to people that they would never have spoken to. And, uh, uh, you know, again, banging on about psychology yet again, there's um, really good evidence for if you get people from different backgrounds or if you have a prejudice against a certain person from a certain background, you bring those people together and just have them do activities together, just essentially have conversations. The amount of prejudiced attitudes decreases massively just by the end, that interaction. And so the whole ethos behind it is so cool. By, by mixing with a variety of different people. That is interesting. That's fascinating. There's another uh, an expression I heard from a podcast I listened to for many years is that you're the average of the five people you tend to associate yourself most with. So if you're mixing with certain type of people you're probably going to perform and live up to their expectations because mm. if you're mixing with a variety of people you've not been with before you're going to broaden your horizons aren't you you're going to see different things from a new perspective take on different angles which is fantastic yeah definitely so that so how did you get involved with that charity were you just approached just got a call out the blue i i approached them it oh, was just it was man. just a job application process oh, wow. yeah okay. yeah it was it was just a regular job application but it was um yeah no it was it was just it's something that runs every year and, and for for someone who has like you know teachers do it a lot there's a lot of people that work with within schools that do it because it is running through the summer months and you just apply you know you go through the regular rigmarole and yeah just got onto it and had a fantastic time to be honest great you're going to do that again depends on how much the phd yeah, goes study, <laughs> yeah. so you're also involved with another organization whose name escapes me now but you can remind me common garden Dragon Hall Trust. Yes, yeah, yeah. Which is again working with youth, but I think this is more getting involved with advanced technologies and getting them involved with that. Yeah, so I've been very lucky to join onto the board of trustees for Dragon Hall. And um, what they do essentially, they have two uh, sites that they use. The one one that's in just behind Holborn Station, and that's mainly for after-school activities for younger kids. Um, the site that I particularly work with is an, uh, sorry, a centre called Soapbox in Islington. 
And what it is, is that it has all these fantastic, wonderful, up-to-date, really cool technologies like 3D printing, VR. They do programming, all sorts of things, um, music studios and that. And it's completely free at the point of access for young people. You can, as long as you are... No, it's not, you don't even have to be an Islington res- resident. You just walk in as a young person. So you don't even have to be a registered user or local resident. You can just walk in. Walk in and you can use all these fantastic equipment. There's a dance studio and it's not really had much advertising. It only really opened like November last year, but they have like hundreds of people walk through the door each week. And it's, it, you know, it's a really cool place. I'm currently involved in research that they're doing there in terms of evaluating how good it is um, as, or not how good it is, but sort of evidencing the impact of the center on how young people interact with each other but also sort of their employment um their employment prospects following that because one of the big things that they kind of advocate for is there's going to be a huge technological deficit in terms of the skills we have as a society and the actual technologies that are looked uh, required in the workplace so the fact that we've got 3d printing as a new technology by the time that our school kids get through their education and the curriculum kind of gets up to date with what 3d printing is there's going to be a whole host of jobs out there that are ready and waiting for 3d printing but none with the skills to do it so this center is really very much geared around getting those young people the vocational skills to work with 3d printers do coding like learn how to use vr and all these fantastic things that can be so valuable in the marketplace but aren't currently being utilized our schooling is so poor in so many aspects it just it it makes me realize i mean bless my wife she was in the school teaching environment for 30 odd years and she, she had to get out because she felt stifled by the, the lack of change in the red tape, the, the constant change, but lack of change in yeah, what, yeah. the direction it should be going. There's none of these things we're talking about. There's not education for the jobs that are going to appear. Exactly. That don't even exist yet. There's, there's no mental health education. Although one of the interviewees on the podcast, Johnny Benjamin, who will be coming up in a few weeks' time, is going into schools talking about mental health issues oh, all around the country. But from his own personal experiences, he's a wonderful, wonderful um, advocate from his own sad personal experiences. We don't talk about money management. We don't talk about social management and social skill particularly. It's all it's still, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic and all that sort of stuff. It's so depressing. It doesn't seem to have moved on significantly from when I, from when I was at school. And yet the problems we have today are tenfold hundredfold what they were when i was a kid with all this social media and all the extra pressures on you know the kids today yeah i mean i remember even sort of like from another perspective my friend who's um lgbt he was saying that he was in school and the sex education we got had no kind of like bearing on what an lgbt relationship might look like it completely just neglected that side of things despite the fact this was you know maybe 2008 so not you know everyone was aware of lgbt stuff and it wasn't really an issue but there was just kind of no mention of it. And that was that. And that was an all boys school, which then must have had like, you know, a fair population of people that were. Well, I don't know what the percentage is, you know, you know, gay, LGBT, you know, whatever, whatever it is, but it's a significant, not insignificant. Percentage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's just not, it's not addressed in mainstream education. And the other thing that annoys me, I've just mentioned it now, <laughs> is things like ADHD and autism. There's not provision there and the, the hoops you have to jump through to get, you know, what was called the statement before, I forgot what it's called now, to get the right level of support in school. Yeah, I think it's a behavior, is it a behavior plan or like a health it, education plan? It is. My wife will kill me because that's what she does a lot of the time. <laughs> but it's just because schools want their, um, because they're all measured on how many points they get. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. The SAT scores and all that. And if they start to say, well, we've got special needs, my, my wife has phone schools up and say, do you need any support for, I can come in and talk to the teachers and give them support themselves so they know what to look for. No, we don't have any kids with ADHD in our school, like she, they tell her. And it's just absolutely crazy. 
It's crazy. So if we're not getting help into schools at, the, at that age, it's going to make it all more difficult for, for people, you know, who are helping, you know, like, like yourself, who are throwing yourself headfirst into supporting the youth today. Very difficult. From the other side, we go back, back to youth offending. Do you do work with young offenders and the victim as well, so they can see the effect they have on their victims? Because that has to be key as well, doesn't yeah, it, from their yeah. perspective? So where I work with Hackney and Youth Offending Teams, we work on a restorative justice framework, which is this idea that when you commit a crime, you're hurting the community, but you're also hurting a direct victim. And the ideal outcome of a restorative justice procedure is for an apology and restoration to be made to the victim. Now, one of the, I mean, I love my work and I think that, that it's fantastic what they do at the youth offending teams. I think one of the areas that is sadly just not understood enough or not really invested in, a much, in as much is the fact that you very rarely get victims actually come and take part in the restorative justice process. And it's so crucial to what it's all about. You know, having a young person who has maybe mugged someone or robbed someone's house, having them come face to face with the, with the person that they've victimized is such a powerful tool. And Currently, I think it's partly because of a lack of understanding about what restorative justice is, that we don't just don't have that in the youth offending teams. So, so are you saying that the victims are less likely to want to attend a joint meeting than, than the, the perpetrator is? Well, the perpetrators have to be there mandatorily they by their sentence. Yeah, yeah. So they, the, so you only take part in the referral or the restorative justice process if you admit guilt. So that's the first step that a young person who commits a crime has to go through. Following that, if they are willing to take part in that, they can come to the youth offending team. That's where I step in and I I facilitate a meeting where we decide what their interventions are going to be for the next three, six, 12 months of their uh, referral order. And then ideally what should happen during that process is that there should be a meeting scheduled with the victim. And then they should have a conversation with how their actions have affected the victim, what the victim felt and how it made them feel. And, you know, for that process eventually to lead to an apology and essentially having the victim feel protected against it happening again because they've met the person that victimized them and how often does that actually happen when the victim will meet the perpetrator i've only ever seen letters being written to victims yet i've never seen or i've never facilitated a meeting so it where doesn't the happen actually... as often as it as it perhaps should no and i think so i've been doing some work recently or like reviewing some literature recently on how effective that meeting is at reducing ptsd in victims or even just symptoms of ptsd and generally it looks like if you actually if you're a victim of a crime and you go and meet the person that victimized you you generally will have less ptsd symptoms than someone who doesn't go through that process is that because you you can put a face to to the crime rather than letting your imagination run right and yeah yeah and it, yeah, it's a lot of things like that so and one of the big things is that when you look at cbt therapy right one of the big things they do is try and make sure that you don't have all these wild thoughts about oh if i'd done this differently if i hadn't walked down that dark alley maybe i wouldn't have been victimized if you go into that meeting with that that perpetrate and you say you know why did you do this they'll give you an honest reason they said oh, i wasn't thinking but it's not that you could have done something differently it's just it's a, a random act on their part and you just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time exactly yeah but it takes the onus off you as, sure. the, as the victim and yeah. so things like that make you particularly healthy and even even being exposed to the perpetrator is something that can alleviate ptsd symptoms i suppose it, it depends on victim to victim and, the, and their individual personality but also the nature of the crime perpetrated i guess if it's a, if it's a person-to-person crime you know they've been physically attacked mm. or abused sexually or whatever you know, mm. rape obviously the work one of the worst offenses i can understand the victim possibly not wanting to be there yeah if it's yeah. if it's some theft petty pilfering i don't know setting fire to your dustbin or whatever or, or malicious damage i think i from a personal point of view i think i probably want to come face to face and not not to sort of 
do anything other than to hear their their side of the, the story and why why they did it. Yeah, yeah, and, and there's a really cool documentary called The Wolf Within, and it's the perfect case of restorative justice. It, it, this guy who was a serial criminal, I think his name is Peter Wolf, and he he was burgling someone's house, um, just some bloke, and then the bloke came down into his kitchen, saw him there. They had a bit of a scuffle. Um, end up, I think the victim ended up getting whacked. Um, the uh, the perpetrator ran out of the house. They eventually got nicked for it. Um, he then went through restorative justice and they had this really bizarre meeting when the perpetrator was sat there being like, oh, well, you know, I've had a bad life, da, 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 da. like giving essentially a story that he told a million times over. And the victim then just sort of switched and he was like, no, I'm not having this. And he, he essentially had a massive go at him, but said, like, you know, I don't feel safe in my own house now because I've been had, had such a stranger in there, essentially. And that was the turning point where this guy who had committed hundreds of crimes in his, in his you know, like years, suddenly went, hold up a second, I've got actual victims to these crimes. And since then, they've now, they will now work together as restorative justice advocates and they go around and they essentially tell their stories. And it's, it's a really cool way. And I think that encapsulates the potential of restorative justice. Not to say that's how it happens each and every single time, but there's so much potential there in terms of what it can do for both the perpetrator and the victim. Yeah. You see, I thought you were going to say the victim said, oh, you know, oh, I feel really sorry for you, you know, and that you've had a bad upbringing. And the, the guy said, you know, that, and then the perpetrator would have said, yeah, well, you know. <laughs> but he was actually, the guy was actually being hard on him. Yeah, and yeah. Said, because I, I don't I feel sorry for you. You know, I, I've had a tough life too, so I don't go around burgling other people's houses. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, I, I mean, I think it's one of those things that, you know, it's it's really just, Sometimes, I mean, even I still to this day, like, although I work with young offenders, it's not just a case that, you know, I'd, I'd be the same with each young person because some of them do play the sympathy card. Some of them, you sort of say like, oh, you know, you can kind of understand why you end up doing these things. But, you know, it's just it's just so varied. Honestly, it's such a mixed job and you'd get some really fantastic people who end up just in the wrong space at the wrong time. But yeah, yeah. But it can work. I mean, you mentioned in your, your talk about a, a young guy called Adam. I don't know whether that's his real name. No, or no, of course not. I guess he's not. <laughs> and he, he, was that restorative justice program he went through to, from a criminal to... Yeah, uh, so, he, I mean, it's it's under the broad umbrella of restorative justice, although there, he didn't end up meeting his victims. Um, but he still went through the re- referral order program, which is essentially looking at interventions to address his criminal behaviour. And, you know, like it, it was one of those cases where it worked fantastically. What, he what was, were his offences? What was he up to? Um, he'd, he'd, he'd done dangerous driving on a moped. He'd um, mugged someone. I think he'd assaulted someone. Okay, um, so not pleasant. No, yeah. no, not pleasant at all. But, you know, obviously one of the big things there was that he'd had this early trauma. And so the way that he, uh, his assault came about of a, of a confrontation. And when you have someone who is a victim of trauma, the way that they regulate their emotions is different from people who aren't a victim of trauma. So they get very, very angry very quickly and it's very difficult to bring them back down from that. And so in his case, it was a case that, you know, he got very angry, become very triggered and then had assaulted someone, which doesn't excuse it, but it sort of, I guess, puts a bit of colour to the picture of it. Um, and yeah, so that had happened. And then, yeah, essentially he went through all these programmes to sort of look at constructive outlets for his emotions. And, you know, there were slip ups. It wasn't always, you know, just a clean it wasn't it wasn't just a case that it worked out he didn't improve straight away you no know, it was a gradual improvement no and exactly that it was gradual in it but the thing is that he did improve and you know as far as i'm aware he's not had any issues since and so it is just that you give young people an opportunity to change their life around and most of them will they're still young and they've got that chance to do that as well which i think is important i guess most 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 kids want to make something of themselves i mean there will be the odd psychopath in there no doubt in, in every community in all societies but most people want to be something want to achieve something and i know you hear on the news and you hear you know through stories that 
gang culture they think this they're, they're someone because they're elevated you know the, the, there's this hierarchy of importance and they can be someone and a leader and people aspire to look up to them but they can be someone within mainstream society just as easily if they're given the right opportunity it's only because they're not given those up or perceive they're not given those opportunities yeah, yeah. perhaps no i completely agree and i think that that's what it is is that that what the gang hierarchy represents is essentially what mainstream culture isn't affording those young people is that you know if you're a young person who doesn't feel like they're smart enough to be in education who isn't given the opportunities to get a good job and rise through the ranks like what else do you do like saying being in a gang is accessible to you because that's you know where you've grown up and it's, it's something that people around you do it's a fascinating area because i as I say talking to jamala um who was talking at uh, tedx and when i interviewed her she grew up again on the east side of london and she was involved in a more peripheral nature, I guess, in gang culture as well. But she pulled herself up mm. by her shoelaces and took herself out of that and worked her way through school and, you know, to become one of the youngest ever Barclays bank managers in the city of I London. Know, she's North. incredible. She's an incredible person. So be sure she did also, she tell, told me, and all this comes out in the interview, she did have a very good mentor in one of her teachers who even, I think, I believe the story was she came around to her on a day off and got her out of bed and dragged her off to do something. <laughs> you know, said, no, you come with me. I'm going to take you down to this sporting event or football or whatever it was. So it, it does need something or someone to take you out of your environment, doesn't it? And to, to let you see that there is something else for you out there. Yeah, because, I mean, when you're a kid, you've got such peripheral, like, you've got such a narrow view of what life is. You know, you don't really sort of think about, well, what is the world apart from, you know, the three streets I've grown up on and the chicken shop that I go to. It's like, it's very, you know. Don't what, go on chicken shops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, I mean, but, you know, you don't have the widest range of experiences when you're a kid or the best perspective to sort of make those decisions within. So I think it is, yeah, it's tricky. I, I mean, it is a very, very difficult subject. I don't think that, it's something that, you know, we can fix in a year. I don't think it's fix it in five years, ten years. I think it will take a long term. It's a hugely complicated area. It's it's a massively complicated area. But it is an area that has to be addressed and spoken to spoken to with policymakers and brought to public attention, public awareness all the time, I think. Because, you know, these kids are the future generation and the future leaders and the future business people and the future you, you know, doing what you're doing and the people who are going to make the change. And you don't want them to have miserable lives and end up in the nick for you know petty petty crime you want them to have a good life and contribute to society and i mean that's the thing that everyone wants a good life like everyone just wants to i mean as far as i'm i've known and met all the young people that i have like none none of them want to constantly be stressed out about you know whether or not they're safe to walk down their streets it's not a life that anyone wants do you think social media's got a part to play in this the you know you've got to be like this one you've got to be like this one look like this do do this I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of social media being what life is actually like. And I think a lot of young people fall into that trap because they don't really realize that what people are posting on social media is very idealized versions of themselves. And I think when it comes to, you know, you can talk about young girls looking at pictures on, of Instagram models. On the flip side of that, you can look at young men looking at pictures of people who have guns and money in front of them and thinking, that's what I want to do. But what they don't see behind that is actually you know, the roughness and the, and the actual genuine terror that those people experience on a daily basis. So yeah, I, I think social media doesn't help. I think, I, but then saying that I don't think it's the only thing that plays a role because we've had issues with gangs far before social media was a thing. Oh, sure. Gang, gang, gangs are not, not a new phenomenon. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> Centuries, hundreds, millennia old, I guess. So where, what, what next for you then? I mean, where do you see your future going? Obviously, you're still, you're going to continue lecturing on psychology? Is that yeah, you? yeah. I mean, in terms of what the future is for me, I think I'm, I'm going to just, I'm looking forward to this PhD is essentially what it is. It's three years of research, but I think it's about sort of making sure that has an impact in the real world as well. You know, 
one of the things that I don't want to lose by doing research is working with actual people. Because I think, you know, although psychology is the study of human beings, it, it can sometimes be quite detached from working with actual people. So, yeah, I think I just want to continue making sure that um, I'm working with young people themselves as opposed to just studying them. Fantastic. Well, I think you're going to make, well, you are making a positive impact with the uh, youth today, um, which is a fantastic thing to do. Long may you continue to do that and hope you have a very <laughs> successful and prosperous Cheers. career going forward. Before we went live, you said on TEDx you were very, very nervous. I mean, how, do, how were you approached for that? Because that is a big, a lot of people aspire to giving TED Talks. Yeah, and yeah. TEDx London is a, is a big gig. I think there were two and a half thousand people in the it audience. Was, it was a lot of people, yeah. You know, and, and nearly all all of your speakers were, were relatively young. You know, mostly young. I think you know, some probably more my age, but some, most most of you were young and I'd say relatively inexperienced in talking to a big audience like that. You came across extremely naturally. You didn't feel. You said you were nervous. <laughs> I was absolutely <laughs> terrified. Really? Yeah, yeah. But um, so how I got into it was I was um. I was lucky, I, I sort of checked my emails one day and I was signed up to their like newsletter because I always wanted to go to a TED event. And they had this program called OpenX, which was the young speakers portion of the TEDx event. And they'd been sponsored by, I think, one of the, one of the organizations that supports them to essentially select four, four to five young speakers or four, just four young speakers who um, could then go and present the TEDx thing. And, and I was sort of saw it the day before the application closed. I was like, you know, what, this could be quite cool. Made a video on like this funny little app, sent it on and then got an interview, which I wasn't expecting. Which, uh, went to the interview, which is at the Citizen M in Tower Hill, which is like lovely, by the way. Um, got there, absolutely nervous again, like went in front of Mariam, who is the curator, uh, sort of gave my little spiel about what I wanted to talk about and then heard back and got it. And then, yeah, and then sort of over the next, like, I think it must've been about three or four months, we sort of had, had sort of, monthly meetings or sort of like every three weeks or so would meet together to sort of run through what we'd got like discuss our ideas try and flesh out how we're going to make it into a TEDx talk as opposed to just a regular talk um for me having given lectures and you know spoken for like two hours just banging on about rambling on yeah exactly yeah <laughs> students falling asleep in the audience for me it was like really difficult to try and take what was quite a quite you know quite a big subject and distill it into seven minutes but I had a really fantastic time with it and yeah um Got there on the first of July and sort of gave the speech. And were you pleased with the outcome? How it, how it came out? Yeah, I was actually. Yeah, I, I I think my biggest thing because I tend to either a talk very quickly or b trip over my words. Um, the biggest thing for me was not to do either of those. And as far as I can tell on the video, I don't think you did either of those. <laughs> I mean, first first of all, I wanted to connect with you afterwards because I thought you gave such a good talk on an area of, of you know interest to me, and I think everyone appreciated the talk as well in the audience. And secondly, as I said to you before, when I listened, watched it back on TEDx or YouTube, whatever, wherever I found it, there was no signs in there. <laughs> you, you, you were talking very, very calmly, very slowly, very methodically, and I think you paused. I think you, you, you taught yourself to pause. By Pauses the way. were yeah, very well rehearsed. Well <laughs> Probably more so than the and, words. And, and the movement around the stage at certain, certain <laughs> points. It's, it's a tough gig. I, I, I wouldn't like to have been in your shoes, but I'm sure you practiced furiously for for weeks before until you absolutely nailed it so you had to get it down to seven to nine seven minutes seven minutes seven minutes yeah that, i think the official ted talks were 19 were they originally 19 minutes yeah so i so they gave us different sort of timings for different speakers and i know that the the open x people got about seven to eight minutes each and then i think the um other speakers got about 12 to 16 minutes well like well the will youngs of this world. yeah yeah exactly yeah the well-established will <laughs> yes. yeah so it, sort of the seven minutes was a very tight time frame to talking but it, in some ways because you just learn the speech off the top of your head you don't have any flashcards or anything i think i was quite happy to have seven minutes as opposed to 12 
90 minutes. So you've you got nothing, no reminders, no laptops there or screens. It's just straight from you. Straight from there. The only thing that you do have is is the screen in front of you showing what slide you're on. So I had slides behind me at the time. Okay, but that's not the talk. No, no, it's no, not the talk no. at all. So, so you, you have to memorize the talk. Yep. Is, is that a prerequisite of, of the job? You've got to memorize it. Well, they so the way that they do it, I, I don't know if it's the same at every TEDx or every TED event, but the way that they do it at TEDx London is just say, memorize your intro, introduction and write that out in full and send it to the curator just to have a look at. And then if you and then you do it the way that you learn best. So if it's bullet points, you do that. If it's writing the whole thing out, which is what I do, then I did that and memorize that piece by piece. Or if you just want to just go and wing it, then you can go and do that as well. <laughs> winging it in front of two and a half thousand people yeah. and then live on TEDx video <laughs> probably not a good idea I no. really thought no you, you performed admirably it was very very impressive I thought everyone there was was brilliant right from the opening ones right to the end and that's it like, as soon as I was finishing my talk I could finally enjoy the rest of the talks as well which was really good so uh, there were some fantastic people that came after me which I did you get to mix with them socially afterwards and yeah you? yeah so I, again I like, met some really cool people like Winnie for example who's this fantastic author talking about her experiences she's really cool and down to earth and Winnie was she the one on the rape Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. He got raped while she was walking Ireland. Yeah, yeah, yeah that so was, that was it. a horrible story, but fantastic person. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it was quite it was quite interesting actually because her book is, uh, talks a large part about her experience, but from the point of view of her attacker. And her attacker was seventeen when he committed the crime. So of course it would have been interesting to you, that, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we sort of had a quick discussion about you know, well, this thing didn't come out of nowhere. Like this young person obviously wasn't typical. Like he wasn't doing very well in of himself, but. Yeah, it's, it was very interesting to talk to her about it and hear from her. You have book. the book at home next to my bed's, my wife's at bedside table, so um, <laughs> she she bought the book. So it's so on the list to read along with the hundreds of other books I've got. Okay, well, so before we wrap up, just a couple of questions for you. One of them is how can people find you, either on social media, if they want to connect with you or through email, if they want to do something more personal, get in touch with you for any specific reason. Yeah, so um, my email address is alex.lloyd120 at gmail.com uh yes that's correct that's <laughs> alex.loyd that's double l-o-i-d 120 that's the numbers 120 at gmail.com i've just found an email yeah all well, my twitter is alex underscore lloyd 93 okay instagram perhaps instagram is the same as my it's twitter the so same. very yeah. good very all good. of them i'm impressed excellent okay well thank you very much indeed it's been an absolute pleasure yeah thank you for having me honestly it's been great and enlightening as well um i'm interested in in psychology as a topic generally so anything to do with this and and i'm also interested about kids having a life and improving their life because i'm, I'm interested in my own self-improvement <laughs> so everybody's got to improve as well i believe and, and have a chance to improve their life so what you're doing is, is great so keep up the good work thank you thank you very much for uh, taking the time out to be with us today cheers thank you